Welcome to The Edges of Lean. I'm Bella Engelbach, and in this podcast, we explore the human and creative side of lean thinking, unusual places where lean thinking is practiced. We meet people who are practicing continuous improvement in many different flavors and styles. So come along with me on a journey to the edges of lean. Episode 33, Continuous Improvement and Managing Conflict When You're Conflict Diverse with Jerry Fu. So how do you deal with conflict when you're conflict diverse? Jerry Fu struggled with that in his roles as a manager and leader, and he is here to share his story and what he has learned along the way. Jerry is a conflict resolution coach for Asian American leaders, and what he has to say is important for all continuous improvement leaders. Jayfu, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Hi, Bella. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here today. And um, I wanted to talk to you today about, uh, especially about conflict resolution, because that is a topic that we've already, we've delved into on this podcast. And I think there's so much to talk about. But before we get into that, Jerry, I would like to learn about your career path because everybody has an interesting career path and yours is no exception. So, so tell us about Jerry. Sure. Yeah. Um, I knew I wanted to do healthcare at, on some level. Initially, my grandpa has been practicing as a doctor, uh, for over 50 years in Taiwan. And so, um, there was kind of that interest in me, you know, from the beginning, but Uh, I found out quickly that unless I know exactly what I want to be doing as a doctor and why I want to be a doctor, uh, it wasn't going to last. So um, in the middle of college, kind of had a first pivot moment where I said, well, you know, if if med school isn't in the cards, what else can I do in healthcare? And so I said, yeah, uh, pharmacy still sounds promising. Let me convince pharmacy school that I would make a good pharmacist and I will go to pharmacy school. Got out of pharmacy school. Um, my mom and I had words over what kind of career or what kind of company, uh, to work for. And so I was at a point in my aversion to conflict, uh, just decided to defer to my mom's recommendations, even though she'd never worked a day in her life in pharmacy and, um, worked for a chain for several years, initially wasn't happy, got complacent in the middle of that because at one point I had flexible scheduling, could I have the quality of life that I enjoyed for myself. And then when that went away, realized again, had to find something else. Tried to teach pharmacy students through a consulting company that I leveraged my network uh, to get this teaching position. Got fired 11 months later. And that was the wake up call for me to realize, hey, there are working better than 70% of my workforce, like I did at the chain pharmacy, wasn't going to cut it anymore. I was being held accountable to the position I was hired to fill. And from there, had some really crazy twists and turns on my career roller coaster, ended up at a independent pharmacy where four of my paychecks pounced, uh, filling for crooked doctors. That lasted nine months. Didn't know how to deal with the boss. who was clearly ripping me off. Again, just the aversion to conflict, right? Just didn't know uh, what to do, how to handle it, because I was already betting against myself, right. And leveraging against myself and say, well, I don't want to, if I fail at this conversation, I may not get any money back. Right. But I'm already anticipating fears that aren't even being realized. Um, ended up at another company that liked me, but 
couldn't pay me more than eight hours a week. And um, when I decided to get more hours by working for them out in a different city, uh, out in Austin, which is about two and a half hours from Houston from where I live now, um, that summer had the chance to help teach some leadership workshops through a pharmacy nonprofit uh, run by some friends of mine. And so teaching leadership, along with seeing it modeled for me, gave me the confidence to take on a manager position and move back to Houston for this position and proceed to get written up <laughs> the following year for not disciplining my technicians and keeping them in line. And so again, just had to eat more humble pie and, and learning how to deal with difficult situations and difficult people and difficult conversations. Um, the blessing in all that was that, um, you know, leadership saved my career because I had gotten some more leadership experience on my resume. I was able to leverage more pharmacy positions uh, that I wouldn't have had uh, the opportunity to, to hire, to apply for otherwise. But after enough insurance drama and other things that I just got tired of dealing with from the pharmacy workload side, I said, well, you know, I, I'm tired of this and I want to spend more time developing people in the way I wish I'd been developed. And so last year in the middle of the pandemic, which is really, it took a pandemic for me to finally open my own business, um, started to invest in uh, building relationships and, and offering my help to develop people is in specific to the area of conflict resolution. And so they, they can handle leadership challenges more effectively. So your journey to leadership was certainly one with a lot of twists and turns and pivots. And Jerry, I have to say, I really admire your, your courage and vulnerability in sharing the story with us. Um, it's a, it's, actually a fantastic story and I love that moment when you said that you realized that you wanted to teach people to lead in the way that you wish that you have been taught so in your pharmacy education mm -hmm. Jerry Fu was there a time where leadership was mentioned or was it all about you know learning about drugs learning physiology pharmacokinetics and and was was it was leadership completely overlooked? It wasn't completely overlooked, but at the same time, it wasn't really, um, they didn't give us enough to work with, really, uh, in terms of learning to build better relationships, realizing, hey, healthcare is a team. You know, I heard one other coach talk about how 60% of, of leadership positions is really dealing with people more than actual, your actual clinical skill. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, is that some of my classmates through school already kind of had that leadership instinct. And even though we had a leadership society that you could apply to, there was no real way of saying, oh, this is how you, you know, handle your positions well, right? When challenges come your way, you find a way to overcome them, no matter what kind of ridiculous solution you may come up with, right? People would say things like, oh, you have to think outside the box. And so for a kid who doesn't know what that means, right, you don't appreciate it until after you've dealt with enough challenges in leadership to say, oh, that's what it means. But no one still, no one in leadership, that's like, it's a club that it used to feel like an exclusive club that I couldn't get be a part of. They're just like, well, if you don't know what this means, too bad, like you're never going to be a leader. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, there's a lot on the pharmacy curriculum side that's ultimately leaves people unprepared for the job market that they need to step into because 
there's not a lot of education on the business side of things. There's not a lot of education on, you know, learning to build your own practice or your own business or the, the leadership challenges that come from running your own business. And so, yeah. And the schools, right. They have a different vision of, of what pharmacists are meant to become. And they, you know, when they say, well, you know, our, the idea we have for pharmacy practices for you guys to become clinical specialists. And honestly, that's nice up until you realize that you, unless you can justify your, that position to hospital administrators in terms of dollars and cents and numbers, uh, it doesn't matter. Right. So you have to be able to, to do that business piece as well. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're saying, Jerry is true, not just for pharmacy education. So I was educated uh, quite a while before you in, in biology and took many, many courses um, that were about biology and a couple of liberal arts courses. And I think I had one psychology course, mm -hmm. but nobody ever told me how to, I ended up working in the pharmaceutical industry. Nobody ever told me about process. Nobody ever told me about people, that I would have to be on a team, as you were saying, that I would have to, you know, whether I was working as a field biologist or working in industry, um, I would, or in academia, I would have to work with other people. And that was, you know, that was not what the education, at least at that time, was for and and it and I think it's still a gap in a lot of education. And when people are talking about you know people coming out of school now, you know whether it's undergraduate or graduate programs, mm -hmm. um, you know leadership and management that's a separate course, right? That's yeah. that is you know ostensibly that MBA, um, you know which may or may not be a value mm -hmm. to somebody. Yep. Yeah. So you say that you're conflict averse, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think was really the moment when you when you realized that being conflict averse wasn't helping you? Was it? Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so many moments, really. So many moments. <laughs> but, but some of the bigger ones where you realize that you have no choice but to engage, whether on the personal or professional level, here are some examples for people to kind of chew on and we can unpack whatever you feel is would be most helpful for for others um, one example on the personal sides when i was volunteering as a church class director on my second day officially on the job i found out that a newer guy in the class was sexually harassing women in our class and they said jerry you're director uh you have to handle this and it's like, you didn't give me a manual. <laughs> They're just like, hey, good luck. Run toward the gunfire. How do I stop it? We don't know. Just you got to deal with it. Right. Fall on the grenade. It's like, okay. Um, avoidance isn't going to make the situation go away. You can't just say, oh, well, maybe if I just stick my head in the sand, maybe this storm will blow over. Doesn't work in leadership challenges. Right. Um, another example, when I first came on with my current pharmacy job, I brought on a lead technician from my previous job. And I found out very quickly that I did not vet her properly just because she had the title. didn't mean that people respected her. She didn't have a good influence on her teammates. And it took a year and a half before I finally, you know, with the help of my managers had the courage to push her out the door because she just knew how to deflect. She knew how to bark back. She knew that 
I was conflict averse by nature and that um, as long as she pushed back just enough for me to be, you know, dreading conversations with her, that somehow she could just kind of stall uh, her inevitable demise. And um, yeah, basically the, the waking up point for me or the, the, you know, the moment of epiphany was when you realize what's this costing me, right? It's costing me productivity from other teammates. The, now the whole team is being brought down because everyone is resentful and frustrated. If they're resentful and frustrated, they're not focused. First and foremost, me. And yeah, one of the funnier moments was when me and my actual lead tech from this job, we would go outside and complain and vent. And then my lead tech would tell me, is it bad when I'd rather just quit this job than to deal with her anymore? And I said to myself, and I said to her, I said, wait, we're the ones in charge. Why do we have to leave? You know, we need, we need her to leave. So those are some of the moments where you realize, Hey, you know what? Avoidance. Um, it's nice if you're just trying to get along with everybody, what you realize, but a lot of the tougher parts of leadership that people don't want to admit to, or talk about application on a, on a real basis is that you will have to make difficult and unpopular decisions for the sake of your company or your organization. And the cost of not making those decisions the long-term, you know, your company might die because you refuse to fire a bad employee, right? How can you afford to risk that? But those are, those are some of the crystallization moments for me. And I think you said something very important that even if you're not talking about, you know, the risk to the whole company, mm -hmm. if something is not happening on a team mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, where it looks like somebody's letting down the team, mm -hmm. And the rest of the team sees it and they see you not doing anything about it. That is, you know, that, that just sets the whole team on a path of, as you said, lack of focus. So the leader not taking action, whatever that action is going to be, is really visible, even if the leader thinks it isn't visible. Um, yeah. So you move from conflict avoidance mm -hmm. to really studying and practicing and teaching conflict resolution. So how do you define conflict resolution? What's yeah. Jerry's definition? <laughs> yeah. Great, great question. I iron it out every day. <laughs> um, the definition I'll use right now is conflict resolution is addressing broken expectations in a way that is both respectful and beneficial to the parties involved. And to elaborate on that, right, you don't necessarily get to a point where the relationship may be restored to 100%. People may need to make compromises, right? Um, a common gauge is to ask yourself, is, is what I'm disagreeing on a preference or a principle, right? If it's a preference, maybe I, maybe I talk about it, but I'll still let it go, or maybe I adjust my expectations or things. But if it's a principle... Uh, then, okay, we need to figure out how we're going to work around this and work alongside each other. But yeah, conflict resolution, right? Um, the goal is to get to a point of closure and that will involve collaboration and that will involve compassion and that will involve uh, uh, communication and you have to have courage to initiate, right? So those are some of the C's of conflict resolution I like to reference, but yeah, the basic definition is to resolve conflict is to, hey, um, we need to come to an understanding and we need to, to come to an agreement 
uh, even if it's not necessarily the agreement I had in mind or that you had in mind, and that's okay. Wow. So, so you described four C's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could you say those again, just for the listeners? To- sure. I mean, I'll throw yeah. in a five. I'll throw in a, a fifth, fifth one just for a, a bonus. Fifth C. Right. Okay, yeah, go for so, it. So, uh, you to resolve conflict effectively. First, you need compassion for the other person, right? Um, you know, in the situation where I talked about with the alleged sexual harassment, I can't assume that what was told to me was automatically true, right? I need to kind of give him this information and decide how he wants to handle it. So have compassion for this guy. Maybe he's just looking for a community. Maybe he just doesn't have a filter. Maybe he, maybe he just needs a little help trying to, you know, know what the expectations and rules are so that he doesn't, you know, hit any tripwires, right? So have compassion. Number two, have courage, right? You need to find 10 seconds to engage and realize, hey, let me, I'll need to be Superman or Wonder Woman. I just need 10 seconds to pick up the phone, send that text, send that email. Hey, I, I need your help dealing with this situation. Can we talk? It's now a good time, right? Uh, you want curiosity, right? Hey, let me be a detective and really look into this situation and see what's going on, right? Because too often, right, we charge ahead with that courage and we say, okay, I'm going to be the hero. And then you realize you did not study the territory at all. Number four is collaboration. Hey, can the confrontation, right? Uh, we just kind of initiate contact, but then we shift to the same side of the table and we say, hey, are we on the same side? Yes. Okay. Are we working toward a common solution? Yes. Okay. So help me out here. Right. And then finally, the fifth C is closure. You have to trust that closure is going to be better than any comfort that you settle for. Right. Closure means being able to exhale because the relief that you experience with that closure is better than staying comfortable. And I, it took a couple failures uh, on my part before I finally broke through and found that closure and realized this is so much better. Even as I want to fall back into old habits when I'm tired or I'm frustrated or I'm not unfocused. And yeah, like part of me is just, I'll get into situations where my technicians will type up another prescription wrong and I'll say, oh, like I don't want to deal with this right now. I don't want to have to address the situation. Let me just fix it just out of convenience. And then all of a sudden I do it a couple more times. And now I'm working two jobs for the price of one and I'm getting burnt out and I'm complaining. And now I'm, and, I'm back. I'm back in a bad state of mind. And your employee has not learned anything about how to solve the problem. on Exactly. Their own. Yeah. They so don't you know haven't helped them either. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Wow. So and I, I'm I'm looking at these these five C's and mm-hmm. um, you know thinking about uh, the principles that we have in lean thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, for those of us uh, who are listening to this podcast or watching, we think about compassion. You know that that is really part of what we say about respect for people. Mm-hmm. That respect for people is really truly valuing human beings as as incredible, marvelous creations, you know, you say, wow, when you think about here's a human being. So that should provide you with some compassion, right? Mm-hmm. Even as you said, you know, it sounds like they may be doing something and they may be doing something that is untoward or, or is not in line with, with rules or, or company expectations, but, mm-hmm. but studying with compassion is so aligned with respect for people. Um, courage is, I think you know that's 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 really part of everything that um, that we should be doing. We should we should be courageous in our approach to making things better. Continuous improvement won't happen without courage. Curiosity 
in lean thinking, we talk about going to the gamba, which is going to the actual place and really seeing the problem happening where it's really happening um, as closely as we can. We can help anyone else solve a problem if we haven't seen it for ourselves, if we don't ask them what's really going on. Collaboration is key, right? That's it's none of this is work that we can do on our own and, and working together and collaborating. And I love this idea of closure and say, you know, we have, we've named the issue, right? This is what you're saying, I think, Jerry, we've named the issue. We have done this work around it. And now we're saying we're done. I would just add to that, you know, from a continuous improvement perspective that you want to, you probably still want to monitor it, right? You want to make sure that it really is is closed before you walk you walk away. So Jerry, your your five C's are so beautifully aligned with lean thinking, continuous improvement. That's that's uh, I think fantastic for me mm. and for my listeners. Jerry, you talk about your work as being a leadership lab. Your workplace mm. is a leadership lab. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. So in my journey, right, I am. Still working as a pharmacist as I build up my coaching business. Happy to tell people I've only been at this a year. I'm just happy to break even, right? I'm making slightly more than I spent. And, you know, I'm doing private tutoring on the side as uh, kind of like a side hustle to the side hustle, just trying to, you know, keep this plane <laughs> off the ground. So happy to tell people, hey, guys, you're going to have to, you know, you might get your face pushed in the mud a couple of times before you finally, you know, get out of there and are able to clean yourself off. So be encouraged, guys. Everyone likes to the idea of entrepreneurship, um, and very you know very few people actually get it off the ground. So that's a fun tangent. But yeah, my pharmacy job is my leadership lab because if I simply read interesting books and summarize them, you know maybe I maybe I help a couple people. But it is in applying these concepts from these books and seeing how my team reacts to them uh, is where. I can tell people, hey, I've experienced some success in this area and I want to show you how I got there. Not simply on my own, obviously, there's a good team around me helping move me forward, but it really adds a level of credibility that you can't get anywhere else, right? And so I'll give an example. So uh, one of my favorite books comes from the Heath Brothers called The Power of Moments. And they talk about like giving a reward specific to the behavior you want to reward. So don't just give like a $25 gift card just to the quote, best employee of the month, right? That's generic. There's nothing powerful to that. There's no significance behind that or symbolism behind that. Well, so what I tried to do is, is give an award to, you know, show appreciation when someone really steps up. And so uh, at one point, we had a technician named uh, Denise. She's she's very sweet. She's really wonderful. At one point, Denise had to cover the entire pharmacy workflow by herself along with me because all the other technicians had family emergencies or other crises come up. Wow. And so she had to handle all inputting all the prescriptions and helping answer the phone and, you know, helping push prescriptions out and get them done. And so Guys, you have to remember that awards don't have to be lavish to really be meaningful. And so what I did was I bought a bottle of Elmer's glue that cost less than a dollar. And I presented the inaugural South End Pharmacy Glue Award for holding us together during a difficult time. And then all of a sudden, all the other technicians said, well, how do I get a glue award? Right. And, wow. you know, that was a lot of fun because I got to 
reward behavior. And, you know, it's more of a token of appreciation because if we really wanted to get clever, I would give a magnifying glass for like a Sherlock Holmes award. Uh, so that, you know, for the rewarding the person who actually like, you know, anticipates and detects potential problems and fixes them, you know, to prevent further headaches down the road. Right. You know, things like this, right. You want to reward behaviors that, you know, are beneficial. And while there is some inherent um, motivations in terms of identity and autonomy and purpose that Dan Pink talks about in his book drive, which is another book I'd recommend uh, for people trying to motivate their employees. Well, um, there are some external rewards that can tie into those intrinsic rewards and intrinsic motivators uh, that can really set an organization apart. I love that. We had a, we had a pastor at our church once who would give people a golden thing. So if somebody stepped up to fix something and they did that, you know, they did that several times, they might get a golden hammer. And, you know, as, as Dan Pink says, this would be a surprise, right? It would be a, a, you know, a reward, not an expected reward, but an unexpected reward. And those, uh, those spray painted golden items, you know, uh, dime store items were um, were highly coveted, yes. and people really felt appreciated when Excellent. they got them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Jerry, you have a whole other life, which is that you um, you are a salsa dancer. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so have you learned leadership lessons in dancing? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a couple C's that come from that yeah. as well. Um, yeah, so leading on the dance floor has helped me lead beyond it for sure. Um, and some of the some of the um, C's that come from that. Number one is command. Um, when you dance, you need to have a firm grasp of the fundamentals. You need to know exactly what the counts are, when to start, uh, and you know you set the tone right. When you recognize, hey, I'm I'm the leader. I need to make sure that my, my follower feels safe and taken care of. Um, that's how you start is with command. Second is communication, right? You can't just yell the moves out as you're leading her, at least from a leader standpoint, or as you're leading a follower, right? Um, knowing how to be firm and gentle at the same time so that there's, our, there's clarity in the signals you're giving them so they know where they need to, where you're leading them to and where they need to go. Uh, the third is creativity, right? Uh, the best leaders mix it up on their followers, right? It's not so predictable. And where people say, okay, morning huddle, all right, we're just gonna sort out our priorities and then we'll move on our way. Maybe I inject a story to get them off guard. Maybe I, I, I bring something unusual. Maybe I ask them questions. Maybe I ask them for stories. Right? Maybe I have a, a, another technician lead the meeting instead of myself. So they're not just uh, hearing my voice and just kind of ignoring it. Cause you know, it just gets old after a while. Right. Yeah. Um, you also want commitment, right? Hey, I am committed to you. I don't give up in the middle of this dance and I'm not going to give up on you guys as people. With that said, wanting what's best for someone doesn't mean keeping them on payroll just because you said, well, I, I told you I didn't give up on you. Sometimes the best way to commit to someone is to fire them. And people don't want to hear that. Right. Um, but the most loving thing you can do for somebody sometimes is to, is, is this is similar to the wake up call I got when I was fired. Hey, um, you can think 
whatever you want about the situation. From the company standpoint, this is not working and we're going to have to part ways, right? Find another company. This is your opportunity to find another company that maybe can appreciate your talents in a way that we couldn't, you know, that's the best case scenario, right? Otherwise, yeah, there are some lessons here. Uh, you're going to have to learn and you're going to have to learn from them on your own time. So those are four C's from learning to dance and translating that into leadership beyond the dance floor. I love that. How did you get into salsa? Oh, that's a long winding road as well. <laughs> Is uh, it? A little bit. I mean, I'll, I'll do my best not to, you know, get caught up on tangents, but happy to summarize for you guys. So I got a taste of it in college. It was actually a really bad lesson when they taught us a bad lesson. It was for a spring formal my freshman year and they taught a terrible lesson. And when we got to the formal, we said, this is boring and frustrating. You know, they didn't really give us anything to really work with to actually enjoy ourselves. So we're just going to stop. And for me, I just said, this is, this is hard, confusing, and I'll probably never be good at it. So I just shelved it like forever. And then it wasn't until I got to pharmacy school, actually, where a friend of a friend was starting the salsa scene up in Memphis. And the friend of mine said, hey, you got to give another shot. And so by my third year, uh, my grades had solidified to a point where, you know, like a couple more bad grades wasn't going to really dip it too much. And so I said, well, yeah, let me take some real lessons. And, you know, on the weekends, I need a study break. Let me go try this out some more. And I got to a point where I really, really enjoyed it. And of course, right as I get to a point where I really enjoy it and I have some level of basic competence, I, I graduate and I move back to a city. I move back home on the other side of the state where there's no salsa dancing. So I went into this really unproductive cycle of rust and lack of confidence and missing it. And then, you know, I go to a convention and then again, more rust and lack of confidence and missing it. And so I just was in this really unproductive cycle. Uh, even after I moved back to Houston, most of the friends I initially made uh, the second time around in Houston, where I originally was for college, uh, we're into two-stepping. So I got into two-stepping, um, which which still helped, but it wasn't until four, uh, seven years ago uh, where I'll tell people it's like, all it took was one really pretty blonde. And, you know, and I said, I have to dance with her. And I brought my A game and, you know, everything came together. I didn't blank out on moves. And I, at the end of that dance, I said, why did I stay away from this for so long? Um, and so I said, okay, nope, I got to make time for this now. And uh, the great thing is now I'm in a position where I'm a volunteer instructor for a local uh, dance club uh, through my alma mater. And uh, we also will raise money and awareness for causes we believe in through dance lessons. We just tell an organization, hey, book a venue. We'll come in and teach a lesson. We'll help you raise money and you know help give you some visibility. So this generosity model, just everybody wins where we just want to, elevate the quality of dancers. And we also want people to enjoy dancing as much as, as I do. So yeah, that's, that's the transformation. That's a really interesting story. And especially the, you know, that, that, I mean, cause it's so different, right. Mm -hmm. From work. Oh, I, yeah. mean, I, mean, I mean, you've talked about some of the leadership things that you've learned from, from dance, but, mm -hmm. but it is a very different environment from a work environment. And it's the kind of thing that I think some, some people, uh, sort of aspire to, I, you know, I, I wish I had organized my work life or my work allowed me to do something like that, to have that creative, artistic, um, mm -hmm. joyful outlet. Um, it's really important to do it, isn't it? It's, it's important to find that time, make that time, 
do that thing, mm-hmm. whether it's it's dance or music or, or I don't know, pickleball, you know, whatever, whatever it Absolutely. is, you know, that allows you to be a person who has fun and plays and, and is artistic and creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's super. Joe, you describe yourself. Um, I'm looking at, at your profile. You describe yourself as a conflict resolution coach um, for Asian American leaders. And I'm, I'm, I know you, you, you coach people who are not Asian American as well. Right. Yes. But why Asian American leaders, especially. Yeah, great question. What I learned quickly in coaching is that uh, niching is one of the most essential things you can do because if you simply say, oh, I'm a coach who helps everybody, anybody can benefit from my services, right? There's there's nothing exciting about that. It sounds nice, but there's you're not going to excite anybody by saying that. And a common clue that coaches use to figure out their niche is to ask yourself, you know, oh, it's who you were 10 years ago. So who are people that are, were like you, you know, when you were uh, the version of yourself 10 years ago? And so uh, my niche that, you know, guys, remember, this is not set in stone. I may have to adjust depending on, you know, who can who can help me pay my bills. Right. Right. But, right. But really, it's I have a heart for Asian Americans in their 20s, like mid to mid 20s, early 30s, because they're at a crossroads, you know, their own conflict between what their parents are telling them is success and what they're seeing is success now, right? Um, and it's not to discount what our parents felt is important, right? Because me being the son of immigrants, as immigrants, um, a lot of immigrants are looking for a sense of belonging. They're looking for safety. They're looking for stability, right? Because they left their they left their their home country to find a better life, like you know, for something here, right? My parents came over from Taiwan because they were tired of the threats from China and they wanted to you know try something different here. And some of the things that they need are credibility, right? And they also need money. <laughs> they need to be able to make right, a life yeah. for themselves, right? Because they don't have a network, right? They're just jumping into a life that, you know, they come over here for grad school and then they hopefully, you know, can find a job after they graduate. And, you know, there's a language barrier on top of that, right? And there's also racism, not to mention discrimination and other things that there. It's an uphill battle for them. And so... When they tell their kids things like, hey, just keep your head down. Don't don't rock the boat. Don't shake the cage. Just earn your paycheck and quietly make a life for yourself. You know, these are these are understandable things, right? Hey, we're just trying to mind their own business, make a nice life for ourselves and then, you know, get married, have kids and and pass along that opportunity to the next generation. Sure. Right. But then you realize that just because you have a respectable title after your name doesn't necessarily mean you're in charge, right? A lot of Asians, you know, believe that if, as long as they have a profitable and respectable skill position, like being a physician or an engineer or, you know, in finance, that somehow that's enough. As long as I have a six figure salary, you know, and people have to address me as doctor, I'm okay. But I, I remember hearing one entrepreneur talk about who asking us who really holds the cards, the doctors and the lawyers are the people who sign their paychecks. And, you know, there's an interesting power dynamic there. Right. But yeah, when, when Asians realize, Hey, you know what, maybe I need a, I need, I need a management position. Right. There aren't enough agent CEOs. In fact, we lost Tony Shea recently. Right. You know, yeah, the that's so sad. Yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah. And so 
you know, you have this conflict and they say, I don't know how I'm supposed to handle this. I don't know how I'm supposed to define success for myself. Right. So this is where I have a heart because that's what I went through. You know, my parents are telling me one thing, right? My mom wanted me to work for this chain pharmacy for 20 years, bank away money aggressively. And maybe in 20 years, I'll finally have enough money to, you know, not let this job dictate terms of my life. And finally, I can do what I want. And hopefully my health holds up by that point, right? This is the deferred life plan that Tim Ferriss talks about, other people talk about. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves, is this really, you know, is this really true? Is this really useful? You know, is this, is this what I'm willing to settle for? Or is this really worth striving for? And so, yeah, for me to come in and as a guide of sorts and to help these people in the 20s and 30s sort out, well, what do I really want to do, right? What was I afraid to do uh, or wanted to do, but I was afraid to because my parents said, oh, no, that's not stable. You know, I don't, I don't like that. But stability is a fleeting thing, right? My parents believe that, you know, my chain pharmacy job was going to be more than enough. And now salaries are dropping because the market's so saturated, right? Uh, quality of the work environment has been terrible for a long time, at least in retail where I've been. And, right, my parents' beliefs about my job are, are you know, they're, they're, there's less and less evidence to support and justify the stance on, oh, Jerry, just stick with pharmacy. Like, you know, that's, that's where the stability is. Yeah, well, I think it's true that there isn't really stability anywhere. And the, pa- mm-hmm. the pandemic has taught oh, us yeah. that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. I can't tell you how much time I spent when I was working in the pharmaceutical company before I left it, working on the 2020 vision. There was something compelling about 2020, right? You know, because, yeah. you know, 2020. And we spent a lot of time working on 2020 vision, doing 2020 planning and 2020 came and it was nothing like what we expected. I mean, so, so I think stability like that is not guaranteed anywhere and it probably never was, but, but I can, I can certainly understand what you're saying that, that when you are a child of immigrants who want stability for their children because they didn't have it for themselves and you love and respect your parents, Mm -hmm. that is a very, very, difficult path to walk and and i think it's it's wonderful that i know that you you see that and that you have a heart for it and that um you're able to to um you know help people to you know create different options and opportunities for themselves absolutely jerry um i wanted to I wanted to ask you about about one other thing before sure. before actually two other things before before go we before we wrap up. Absolutely. Um, I actually wanted to go back to to conflict resolution, and you talked Certainly. about you talked about a different the difference between and you have to remind me but, um, between um, something and principle and if there's um, oh, preference and principle yeah. preference and right preference and principle yeah. and and so this was a conversation um that I, I wanted to delve into a little bit more and that is this idea of principle uh, um which you just say that is also um another another word for that is values mm-hmm. yeah. um i think what you said about the difference between preference and principle and understanding what that is is super important mm-hmm. and um, do you, have you seen situations where people have the same principles, but have a different preference about how to act on that principle? 
versus situations where people clearly have different principles? Do they play out differently? Yeah, great, great question. So uh, I'll, I'll use, for some reason, the church example is coming to mind when you ask that question, right? So I had one in mind too, but you go okay, with yours. Yeah, no, please. Yeah, no, let's unpack both of them. So I remember having a debate with one of my um, pharmacist friends who is a, who is a staunch Southern Baptist and we'll have to get into, you know, current events involving that denomination. But many years ago, we had a, we had a, you know, a heated discussion, an intense discussion over, you know, how people are meant to dress when they come to church. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> and this is a fun one because, you know, he tells me, Hey, look, you know, when I go to work, I put on a collared shirt tie, you know, and I've come with my best because I want to be professional. And why would I do any less for my Lord and Savior on Sundays? Right. Which, you know, is a nice principle, right? You want to come dressed in a way that says, yes, I, I value uh, the holiness of worship, right? I value the seriousness that it takes on. And I want to show God that I'm, I want to present myself as best as possible when I'm entering um, a time of worship. But where did the tie come from, right? What if, what if are you expecting every man, you know, or every, every child to have, have access to ties, right? What if, what if someone's best is a FUBU jersey, right? What if someone's best is, um, you know, like a, an Asian outfit, right? Like, you know, a ceremonial outfit that doesn't involve a tie. Are you going to be so hung up on your cultural preferences and background to say, well, you know, that culture is nice, but it's not wearing it. You're not wearing a tie. So I don't think you're really serious about your time of worship, right? There's a lot of nuance there that says, what is the principle? The principle is that you come to church serious about worship and you dress whatever you define as your best, right? And the, print, the, the preference is, well, we prefer everyone to be wearing a tie. <laughs> it's like, well, those two may not always mix, right? Um, a conflict between two principles, right? In contrast, let's say I'm at work. The two principles that can conflict with each other that are both essential, make money and take care of the patient, right? Mm. Sometimes what is profitable is not what's in the patient's best interest, right? Um, example, one of my favorite examples from my days in the chain pharmacy is that I'd have to upsell a, a different item each month. And so one month I would have to upsell, say something like batteries or gummy bears, right? And, you know, take care of the patient, but no chain pharmacy expects me to charge every time someone asks me for a drug consult, right? People say, Hey, what OTC item, you know, or over the counter item, do I need to take care of like this heartburn? And I tell them and say, Hey, thanks. They don't, I don't make any money off that. I don't even charge 50 cents for that. Right. And so it's just funny where to say when, or when, you know, um, let's say a patient says, Hey, you know, this doctor prescribed this really expensive medication to treat my autoimmune disease. Do I really need it? And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, not really just based on your clinical situation, like your, your health isn't so bad where you actually need this drug. But my, I know my incentive check is tied to script count, right? So there's an inherent conflict right there, right? If I tell this patient, Hey, you know what? You maybe don't need it right now. Maybe we can check in six months because the prescription is good for a year, right? If I spare her the expense of taking this medication that isn't necessary, right? 
but I'm not getting any money for that, right? The company will be mad at me for saying, well, why didn't you push this drug on her? Like, that's how we pay your salary, right? So there is a, there's an example there of like two principles that are both beneficial, but don't necessarily align with each other. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I think what that says from a leadership perspective mm-hmm. is that you are going to have, you, you, you will have important principles, important values mm-hmm. to your organization. Yes. And for an organization that wants to stay around and continue to, to provide people with jobs, you have to be profitable, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think we want, we would argue with that, right? Exactly. Right. On the other hand, if all of them are equal, if you tell your employees that all of these values or principles are equal, then mm-hmm. it's very difficult for people to make a decision. Mm-hmm. So knowing which is the most important yeah. is absolutely key. Mm-hmm. Or um, this, and this was something that I learned from my former company. If you have some that really are, uh, you know, parallel, equal in value, you must allow time for decision-making. You must, yes. and you must allow a collaborative decision-making process so that people can discuss and weigh in a particular situation, which, which value applies in this situation, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps, perhaps in that case. But I think it's, it's very, very clear. For, it's very important for leadership to say, as some organizations do, this one principle is our true north. This is the one. Mm-hmm that all the others fall under. And Good. when you need to make that hard decision, you're going to go for this one, whether, you know, whether that's helping the patient or maybe, you know, maybe for an organization, it is profit and, you know, but that, but say it, you know, yeah, be absolutely. clear about that in, exactly. in leadership. Yeah. I think those are two great examples, Jerry. Thanks for, thanks for clarifying that. Of course. Hey, Jerry, if people want to talk to you some more, I'll learn more from you. Where can they find you? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, or if you want some more free, fun stuff, you can go to my website, which is www.adaptingleaders.com. A couple of the free things available at, with no strings attached. Uh, number one, free PDF download on a framework to handle hard conversations. You can also schedule a complimentary 30-minute consulting call to share your story or a situation you want some help with. And I also have a blog where I share summaries and takeaways from interesting and useful leadership books, along with some life hacks, um, much like the, the dancing example we shared earlier today. So by all means, check out the website. I hope uh, it pays dividends for you, even if you never hire me as a coach. But if you do, uh, there are plenty of coaching packages available as well. When you think about, you've had such an, an interesting life so far and you've got, you know, lots of life ahead of you. But when you think about a young person studying out now, you know, maybe somebody just, uh, you know, graduating from, from um, an undergraduate position, going into their first, um, you know, real job in the workforce or, or perhaps coming out of a, a graduate, graduate school. You look at that person, what would be the piece of advice that that would be the Jerry Fu piece of advice they should carry with them every day. Mm, yeah, great, great question. And I have to be careful not to be prescriptive just because I'm in healthcare. Um, <laughs> Privacy I, joke, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> when you're in, when you learn through the clinical knowledge of the self, you can't help but nerd out on it, right? Yeah. Um, maybe it's just a series of questions. Uh, I'd rather ask them. So instead of giving a giving a directive, I'll I'd rather just offer a couple of questions to help them kind of figure out their true north, maybe to say. Uh, the first is to ask yourself, you know, what 
what does success mean to you? Uh, the second question I would ask is what is the benefit of that success? Uh, the third is, you know, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? Um, and then four, I would ask, you know, what can you do today to work on that legacy? Um, I'll probably just start with those four questions because I don't want to just do the standard. Well, where do you see yourself in five years? Because, you know, the, those are everywhere, but to really ask yourself, Hey, you know, what is the direction of my life? You know, what would make my life meaningful and give it not just success, but significance, uh, which is why I asked the legacy question. Right. And then also, yeah, just don't just think about what your legacy is, you know, what are some steps you want to take today uh, in order to put that legacy into practice. And you don't have to do anything big. I tell people, hey, no one's asking you to be a CEO of a company tomorrow. No one's asking you to, to run a marathon tomorrow. No one would ask you to do that, right? Start with like a mile or a 5K or start with an entry-level position just to get an, an appreciation of, hey, what is my role within the company, right? How does that fit within the bigger context of the company structure? Um, and so you have that balance of zooming in and zooming out to help kind of see everything as it is and not just get caught up in one perspective, get stuck on one thing. So I would just ask anyone who is graduating or about to get out into the workforce, whether they finish a degree or, you know, start another job, hey, just try these four questions out and see what kind of answers you get. Brilliant. That is so powerful to think about, about as a young person, thinking about what your legacy will be. And over the course of your life, it may end up being something different, but just thinking about it is going to be very, very powerful and effective and help help divine purpose mm -hmm. thank you jerry foo for coming with me to the edges of lean absolutely you're very welcome this is bella engelbach and i'd like to thank jerry foo for being my guest on the edges of lean how do you manage conflict we'd love to hear from you find jerry at adaptingleaders.com or on linkedin find me at leanforhumans.com or on linkedin or comment wherever you watch or listen and tell a friend about the edges of lean. Please join me in exploring more of the edges of lean. There's a lot to learn. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos with lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbein. This is a Lean for Humans production.